Amen. All right. You may be seated. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Joe. We could have been sitting here all day, you know. (laughs) Tricked me with that prayer. That was good. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, we are diving into a new Christmas series called Don't Miss Christmas. And I thought it would only be appropriate if we, in my best 1990s movie trailer announcer voice, kind of dove into one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. Maybe as I start to read it, you'll catch on as to what movie it is. So here we go. Dang it. Oh, man. All right. Well, we'll see if you can guess it. Adam, you're fired. I'm kidding, you're doing a great job. Do, do a better job next Sunday, all right? Oh, we'll still see if you can guess it, all right? It is Christmas time. That's not even a good movie trailer announcer voice. It is Christmas time in a world where the McAllister family is preparing for vacation in Paris, France, but the youngest in the family, Kevin, got into a scuffle with his older brother, Buzz. <laughs> Very good. Man. Probably got a really high SAT score, didn't you? Yeah, that was, that was good. By the way, if you're going to get into a scuffle with any sibling, it's going to be one named Buzz. All right. And was sent to his room, which is on the third floor of his house, then the next morning. While the rest of the family was in a rush to make it to the airport on time, they completely forgot about Kevin, who was now has the house all to himself. Being home alone was fun for Kevin having all the pizza to himself, jumping on his parents' bed and making a mess. Then Kevin discovers two burglars, Harry and Marv. By the way, just the best burglars in any movie ever. And so any burglars after that just didn't quite live up to the part. And Harry and Marv about to rob his house on Christmas Eve. Kevin acts quickly by wiring his own house with makeshift traps to stop the burglars and to bring them to justice. What happened in Home Alone? These parents that were incredibly busy had probably way too many kids. I don't quite remember if they were all their kids, but you know, if you forget one at home, it might be too many, okay? (laughs) Your quiver might be full, all right? They forget Kevin at home. Before they go jet-setting off to Paris, they forget their son at the house. And what happens for Kevin? Kevin completely misses Christmas with his family. Now, Kevin completely makes up for it. In all of my wildest, adventurous dreams that I had growing up, I wanted to turn my house into what Kevin turned his house into to make sure those burglars did not come in. Now, subsequently, that also means that I wish someone would try to break into my house, and I didn't have quite all the equipment and the resources that Kevin had. But this Christmas, I don't want us as a church to miss out on the bigger picture of what is going on. This Christmas, I don't want us to be like the McAllister family who gets so busy, so caught up in all the details of everything taking place for their family, for the family they were going to see, for the places that they had to get, for the gifts that they had to give, for the bags that they had to pack, for the meals that they had to eat and be ready for. What'd they do? They completely forgot about their son. 
So I do not want us as a church to be a church that gets all ready for Christmas, that is excited to dive into the holiday and all these cultural things that are all good things. And in the midst of all of that, we just completely forget about the son, not just a son. If you've forgotten about Macaulay Culkin, you're not alone. Everyone else has too. But in this Christmas season, let us not forget about Jesus. I think what we will see is that Christmas is in the details. It's in the details culturally. Look at our houses, right? Like I told you last week, the scariest thing that I've done in my life to date is put Christmas lights up on my house. Probably one of the scariest things you've done as well. We get nice and decorated on the outside. We get nice and decorated on the inside. Think about all the Christmas movies that we love to watch this time of year. I'm just going to go through my top three real quick. Number one, unarguably, Die Hard, okay? Uh, If you disagree, I'm sorry, but you're wrong, all right? You and Adam, you're both wrong this morning, and I'm just playing. (laughs) Number two, I would think Home Alone, but I would say Home Alone can be tied with number three. You know, it's it's kind of a toss-up, but Elf, all right? And if (laughs) Adam's back in, everybody, he can... He can stick around. And if you don't put spaghetti, on, or if you don't put syrup on your spaghetti, you're missing out. Let's think about Christmas music. I mean, if you play it before Thanksgiving, that might be sacrilegious. But if you don't play it after Thanksgiving, you're missing out on a big part of the holiday. There's really only two Christmas albums that you need to make the holiday complete. The first one is NSYNC's Home for Christmas. Um, look, it's the greatest pop. It's, it doesn't even matter the genre. It's just the greatest Christmas album ever, followed up by Lady Annabellum, now known as Lady A on this winter's night. Look, if you're missing out on that, you're missing out on some really nice evenings by the fire as you're waiting for Santa to come down the chimney that you don't have because we live in a fireball of a desert. <laughs> There's the Christmas treats as well, right? And I mean, these things are awesome. And and I just realized when I went to Walmart recently that one of my favorite Christmas treats is when they take the all-hallowed zebra cake that little, you know, little Debbie's, oh my goodness, don't act like you've not had a zebra cake, okay? (laughs) No one's better than a zebra cake. They take the zebra cake and they turn it into a Christmas tree and it totally throws everybody off. They go bananas for it. They buy them out. Well, me and Jacob realized on a quick Walmart run that they started making those chocolate flavored, okay? So if vanilla wasn't your game. Now they have chocolate, and I just felt left out. I felt like somebody at Little Debbie should have emailed me. I feel like I've consumed enough of those that I'd at least be on a list somewhere. (laughs) And if it's not the Little Debbies, maybe it's the eggnog. And whatever you put in the eggnog, I'm talking about nutmeg, okay? I don't know where you were thinking. (laughs) Eggnog's terrific, and it's the gathering, it's the planning, it's the gift giving, and let's not lie and think we're just better than this. It's the gift receiving. I love getting gifts. I also love giving gifts. But what is Christmas? It's not one of these things. You can't just isolate it and say, well, you might be able to isolate a little Debbie Christmas tree and say, Merry Christmas. I'd I'd feel the joy of the season for sure. But we can't just separate these things. It's all of these things combined. And so this morning, we're going to look into the Bible. And over the next, this week and next week, and then as we go into our candlelight service in the park following Jingle Jam, we're going to be looking at the details that we see in the Bible. And we see that Christmas is incredibly special. And when we look to the Gospels, the two Gospels that record it, and take it down such unique detail, we definitely get Christmas. But if we don't go back to the Old Testament, 
we're completely missing out on so many of the details that make Christmas absolutely beautiful in one big special thing. So church family, let's not miss Christmas. Let's not miss Christmas in the details culturally and this season. Let's not miss Christmas in the details biblically. If I was going to ask you to open up your Bible right now and turn to the Christmas story, where would you turn? Luke, absolutely incredible answer. Luke takes it down. He goes like before the Christmas story, he gets John the Baptist, he gets his parents, he gets everything leading up to the birth of Jesus. And for more of a Gentile audience, what's the other one? Matthew, absolutely. You would go to Luke or to Matthew. And if I said go to the very beginning of it, you'd probably go to Luke. Matthew is where we'll be next week. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. But if I said turn to the very, very, very beginning of the Christmas story, where do you think you'd turn to? Man, you guys are good. All right. If you grew up in church, if you grew up around the Bible or hearing about the Bible, you might know that Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And so if you have a church Bible with you today, an ESV Bible, turn to page two. If you have any other Bible, turn to Genesis chapter three. We're going to start at the very beginning this morning. Genesis chapter three, verses one through 15. But first, there's something we have to take care of, all right? It's been brought up to me through a survey that was done, and I believe that as we address things like Christmas, there are certain cultural topical issues that we need to address along with it. So I came across a survey that a friend of mine, a church member here, passed on to me this week, and I thought, one, is heartbreaking, um, but two, it's not incredibly surprising. Did you know, and maybe you don't know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but did you know that around two and five Americans do not know what Jesus was up to prior to the manger? I'm sorry, two in five Americans do know what was happening with Jesus before the manger. That means three in five Americans do not know, just either don't have the knowledge, don't have the information, or just completely disagree with that Jesus was around before the manger. So I want us as a church to know this. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene as something that God created as a baby in the manger where animals should be eating out of. Jesus is present at creation. And so today, as we are reading this creation account, read through it with a mindset of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three separate but three the same, all equal, different parts to play. Jesus is present at creation. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. You don't need to turn there. We're about to be right back in Genesis 3. But it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word, the Word that it's talking about, capital W, this is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That means eternity. It means he's always been and he will always be. He didn't just hop onto the scene. He has no start and he has no end. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That means every creation in the creation account in Genesis, in the very beginning, all, everything in the earth, on the earth, of the earth was made through Jesus. And without him, not anything was made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men, that is us, that was Adam and Eve. 
the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, church family, where was Jesus before the manger? He was right there. He was right there at creation. He was present in creation. Creation was literally happening through him. He has always been. He will always be. So that means he was present in the garden. And if Jesus was present in the garden, then that means Jesus knows exactly what we're about to go over today. He knew exactly what that would require of him. He was fully aware of every implication of what was taking place. And so when we look at Christmas and we look into the details, we have to realize that Christmas is in the garden. And it's in the garden from the very beginning. Let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have your Bible, that's great. That's fine. We have it up here on the screen. If you need a Bible, let us know afterwards. We'll get you one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, this is the serpent saying to Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, right? That's parcel tongue for all you Harry Potter fans, okay? (laughs) You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what kind of tree is this? This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Dr. Tony Evans, one of my favorite pastors, would say this is the Google tree right here. It's got knowledge of both good and evil, and when you go to it, you are going to have that knowledge as well. All the good, but also all the bad. So the serpent trying to deceive you will not surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So any of you parents really frustrated with your kid's clothing bill, really frustrated with having to go to the store to keep up with the latest fashion, you can blame Adam and Eve. They had no idea. They were buck naked from the get-go until they ate from the Google tree. Then the eyes of both were open, and they both realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? God didn't need to ask that question. God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. (laughs) And then God asked one of my favorite questions in the whole Bible, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, isn't that just like any man ever? (laughs) Next time your husband gets in trouble for doing something he was not supposed to do, and he tries to blame you for it, you know what you can tell him? You're just like your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I can't believe you tried to just put that on me like that. (laughs) Despicable. Adam 
blames Eve. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You know what Eve didn't do? She said, I, I blame that idiot that you said to lead me. Yeah, he's the one that let us do this. Yeah, it might have been my idea, but he didn't have any sense of leadership or headship for us. No, she, she owned up to it. Thank you, Eve. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Just real quick, I want to pause. If snakes were not on their bellies, it would take a perfect world for me to be okay with living, okay? I don't know if snakes had wings, if they were just running around with little bitty legs like wiener dogs. I don't know what the snake looked like before this, but I'm pretty sure a snake with wings is the closest thing to a dragon you could ever get. I'm not cool with that. Um, so it would take a perfect world for me to be okay with that. No sin, no snakes flying out of the air and biting me on the neck. I'm just really glad that God cursed the enemy right here from the very beginning, and he certainly did. He's on his belly. He's in the dust for all the days of his life. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray, close, and get out of here. That's all we want to talk about, really. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And this is where we get the very beginning stages of Christmas. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, what do we see in Genesis 3? We see that sin enters into the world. Verses 1 through 5, there's deception from the serpent. What does the serpent do? He does the same thing to us that he did back then. He says, eat, do this, be like God. He says, take control. Surely he didn't say that. He may not directly oppose what God says to us, but he will certainly take what God says to us and twist it just enough to where if we continue down that road, we're going to be miles off from where God intended us to be. He comes to Eve with deception. He comes to Adam with deception. Adam and Eve fall into temptation. We fall into temptation. Verse 7, we see that because they have fallen into temptation, because sin has now entered the world, they experience the same thing we do today, and that is shame. In verse 8, when they feel shame, what do they do? Same thing we do. We're just like our great, 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 great grandparents. They hide. And then God comes. He confronts them of the wrongdoing. And what do they feel? They feel conviction. Verse 9, verse 10, Adam gives faulty justification. Men, women, so many times when we are confronted of our sin, we do this exact same thing. We start to justify it. Well, this is actually why I did that. Or I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't have put me in this situation. Or I wouldn't have done this if I hadn't have been around this person, this friend that you gave me, this acquaintance that you have put in my life. God questions Adam, and again, Adam shifts the blame. He tries to put it on someone else. God questions Eve, and then God goes into a reckoning. And we see this cycle of sin in our lives over and over and over and over and over again. Whether that be addiction, whether that be something that we run to, whether that be something we try to use to escape, it does not matter. We go through this exact same cycle of sin until verse 15. And that is God's redeeming 
plan. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's taking place right here? First of all, they're using words like enmity. And if you're anything like me, we need to break that down. What does enmity mean? All right, this doesn't mean that people will just not like snakes anymore, okay? Clearly, we can take that from verse 14. Clearly, we can take that there's some kind of thing between humans and reptiles in here. And if, if you like reptiles, I'm sorry, but that's not right, okay? <laughs> but we see that there will be opposition. There will be opposition between the offspring of Eve and then the offspring of the serpent. But what else do we see? Yes, there will be enmity, but God, God addresses the serpent before he ever addresses Adam, before he ever addresses Eve. He puts a death sentence on the serpent. This is the first gospel message that was ever preached in the history of the world. To the entirety of humanity, to Adam, to Eve, with the enemy present. God says, I will take care of this. Your end is coming. Because you have done this, one day you will be defeated. A rescue mission is put in place for Adam and Eve before God ever addresses them. Before conviction, before reckoning ever comes on Adam and Eve, God goes straight to the source of the problem, and that is the serpent. And what does God do for Adam and Eve before he ever confronts them of the wrong they've done? He puts a plan in place to redeem them, to bring them, in, to the, in, bring them back into right standing with him. We also see that this is foreshadowing, that the offspring of Eve would be opposed and be hostile to the serpent. This means that one day there will be a showdown between the offspring of Eve, Jesus, and the offspring of the serpent, Satan. We see that in this showdown, Jesus will have victory over the serpent. It says, he will bruise your head. That means that Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent, which is much more serious than what God says the serpent will do, which is, you shall bruise his heel. What we see is this takes place on the cross. And what we see is that the cross does not take place without the birth. And so from the very beginning, the plan for Christmas was put into place. Jesus has victory this sin that is released into the world is taken care of. Jesus has victory over it. How does Jesus have victory over this sin that is released into the world? He lives a perfect life. He becomes a perfect sacrifice. And now believers are free from sin. We are forgiven for sin because of the work of Jesus. And we are called to move away from sin in our lives, and we are called to move towards sin in other people's lives with the hope of the gospel, and that Jesus is victorious. Not only was Jesus victorious over sin, but Jesus was victorious over death. Maybe this is sounding familiar to a lot of you. We talk about this every single Sunday because this is the gospel. This is what we live for. This is what gives us life, and this is what we take to people who are lost and do not have life. Jesus, victorious over sin, victorious over death. Jesus was metaphorically bruised in the, cru in the crucifixion. When Jesus takes the cross, yes, 
his heel was bruised, but was he defeated? No. Did he die? Yes, absolutely. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He died for the sins of Adam and for Eve, and he died for the sins of everyone else since them. Hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because of Christmas and because Christmas leads to Easter, there is no victory that hell can claim over the believer of Jesus. There is no sting of death anymore. Jesus also has victory over the enemy. And the enemy's tight grasp over the world is loosened. His head is bruised, but he is not yet totally defeated. We see that that day is coming down the line when Jesus has total victory, where the enemy is cast out into the lake of fire and judged for everything. And then we see that his plans are foiled by the real plans of God. The enemy thought he had won. What did the enemy do? He only bruised the heel, baby. That's it. Jesus may have died, but he didn't stay dead. You can't find his grave anywhere today. He rose from the dead. And then that being risen from the dead, he has victory. This is that part in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of my favorite books of the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, where King Aslan surrenders himself to the White Witch. And Lucy Pevensey looks up at him with her big, crying eyes, and she says, You can't do this, Aslan. You can't give yourself up to her. We'll never win if you give yourself up to her. And the white witch, not being aware of what was to come, she thinks she's victorious. And surely in this moment, the enemy thought he was victorious. But Jesus' heel only bruised. And what does King Aslan say as he looks back at Lucy Pevensey? He says, surely the white witch did not account for the ways of the deep magic. Church family, let me tell you today, surely the enemy did not account for the resurrection and the defeat that Jesus would have over him. And Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, putting us back in right relationship with God and raising from the dead. Surely he did not account for the ways of the deep magic. The beginning of the plan for the cross started in the garden and the cross has always been the solution to the sin problem. And Jesus always knew because he was present there in the garden that these things were to come. And the beginning of the plan towards the cross starts at Christmas, and Christmas was in the details from the very beginning. So I hope from this point on, whenever you're reading through, you know, the very beginning stages of your read the Bible in a year, and you get, you know, the first few days in, and you read this, I hope you look back at this and say, you know what, that's where the rescue mission started for me. You know what, this is what put the plan in place for a king to become a child, to be born in a manger, and then to become a king that was different than anyone would ever know. So what does this mean for us? First point this morning, Jesus came for broken people. Jesus came for broken people. Just like I said, he didn't stay a baby. He went as the king of heaven, reigning, down into a manger, wrapped up in flesh, and then he became a king that no one expected. They thought that he would set them free, from the rule and the oppression of Rome. But what Jesus came to do was set them free from their sin, to liberate them from the grip, from the grasp of the enemy when he gave up his life. Maybe this morning, you're like me. 
and you realize that you are absolutely, completely broken as a person. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, for all fall short of the glory of God. This means that we are broken people, but I want you to know that there's hope, and there's hope in Christmas because Jesus doesn't stay a baby. He takes the cross after he lives a perfect life. Romans 6.23 is our hope. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does this mean for us? Church, this means that in Christmas, Jesus came to make us whole. In Christmas, Jesus came to put us back together. In Christmas, Jesus came to redeem our past. In Christmas, Jesus came to repurpose our stories. In Christmas, Jesus came to set us free from the sin and the pain and the agony and the death in our life. In Christmas, Jesus came to break us out of this cycle of sin that we were set to live in the rest of our lives, just like Adam, just like Eve, without him. In Jesus in Christmas, Jesus came to make all things right between us and God. Second point, final point this morning is that in Christmas, Jesus is the greatest gift ever given. Because in Jesus, there is eternal life. Only in Jesus is there eternal life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus does not say, I am a way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to be made right with the Father except through the work of Jesus on the cross. And church, let's not lose sight of the detail that this plan for the manger that would one day lead to the cross started from the very, very beginning. The plan to save Adam and Eve, yes. The plan to save you and me, their descendants, absolutely. Let's pray. Let's thank Jesus for that. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that while you were present in the garden, watching everything that was unfolding before your eyes as Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, and you knew exactly what that would require of you, thank you that you still came. Thank you that you were still born humbly, in a manger, not in a palace where everyone was looking for you. Thank you that you lived a perfect life. Thank you that in living the perfect life, you became the perfect sacrifice for us, and that when you took the cross, you traded our iniquity, you traded our unrighteousness, you traded our brokenness and our sin, and you took that upon yourself, and what we've received in return when we make you our Lord and our Savior is your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, from the very beginning that that was the plan. Thank you that you did not forget about us, but that you came to seek and to save every single one of us that was lost. Church family, all eyes closed, nobody looking around. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you realize that there's brokenness, that there's sinfulness in your life that has not been taken care of that you have not gone to Jesus with. I want you to know that the only way for the sin in your life to be taken care of is for you to take that to Jesus. And this morning, if you feel like Jesus is calling you into relationship with him, if you feel like it's time to take your sin before him, to ask for forgiveness, to be made right in relationship with him, that you would let us know on your Connect card. And before you leave this morning, I pray that you would have boldness and confidence to just check that box 
letting us know that you're interested in the next step of beginning a relationship with Jesus. We don't want you to walk alone in that. We want to walk alongside you in that, help show you what that looks like. And so if that is you this morning, just pray that you would check that off. Let us know. Turn that into the giving box on the way out. Father, for the rest of us in here that have put our faith in you, I pray that you would strengthen it this morning, that we would see that it was your plan from the very beginning that we would be your sons and your daughters through the adoption process of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Help us, Father, to not lose sight of the details and the beauty of the bigger picture this season in the hustle and in the hurry, but that we would be focused on your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.